Okay, Bokatov. Um, before we get going, just want to tell you a little bit about who I am. Um, my name is uh, Ian Schaffer, or as the Americans would say, Ian Schaefer. I uh, gave in on that one many, many moons ago, as they say in this country, Schaeffer. Without the Ian, they just they str- cut to the chase. Um, and uh, we've just made Aliyah. We've just moved here three and a bit months. So it's just over three months, which uh, is quite... Uh, God moves in mysterious ways, that's all I can say at the moment. Um, but Baruch Hashem, it's really been uh, inspiring in the extreme. Um, today is a very good example of what's been happening to us. We've just met... Marilyn for the first time in many moves we used to, what the Americans would call carpool, I don't know what they call it in England we used to, rotor oh, I remember the word, thank goodness uh, so the, 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 uh, it goes back a long way, and we're talking like 30, 40 years ago, something, something in that region uh, and this has been happening to us all the time and this has been really, really wonderful kind of reliving my youth, reliving a lot of periods of my life uh, just to explain what I've been doing um, after I, uh, I suppose the word is graduated and got smicha and I was um, a, a rabbi in London, then I moved into Chinuch in 1990, um, got involved with a project called Emmanuel College. Some of you may know of it or have heard of it. A uh, fantastic school, which at the time was the inspiration of Emmanuel Jacobus, the Kran Livrocha. And I was there for eight years. In 1998, we moved to the States. Uh, a very, very uh, big move, culture shock of the extreme. Uh, as I said this week to somebody from England, I said, I'm now back to calling trousers trousers, thank God. And I can call <laughs> cookies uh, biscuits, as I always did. Um, it's not just my. Yeah, maybe not Ramad Beshemish. In America, just to warn the Brits here, the people from Britain, when you ask for a biscuit, you won't get what you're asking for. I mean, the, the Americans in the audience will know what I'm talking about. You get, you get a scone, believe it or not. So, uh, we moved to New, New Jersey. We lived in Fairlawn, New Jersey, for 18 years. Rabbi Yudin Shaw, if those know Rabbi Yudin. Um, and then six years ago, we moved to Cherry Hill, which is in the near to Philadelphia. My kids are based in, still in America. My daughter... My oldest daughter is living in Silver Spring, Kent Mill, which is a beautiful, beautiful community. They're all beautiful communities. My middle daughter lives in Cherry Hill, um, and my son is now in Baltimore, but probably moving to Miami within a year or so. No children here? And one grandchild, Baruch Hashem, she's made Aliyah. So we're sort of doing it slightly different to the norm, but we'll, we'll get them here slowly but surely. My... Uh, my next grandson is 16, and he'll come to learn yeshiva. We'll see. Mitz Hashem. Kol Tov. My last 24 years in America, I was teaching in various schools, Ramaz in New York, um, and Bruria. I got a taste of American education, which I think was really special. And particularly for the last 21 years, I've been teaching twice a week in uh, Yeshiva University in uh, the girls' school, Stone College. And Stone College, I don't know if anyone here is a... Uh, a, a alumni of Stone College is the most wonderful institution. Yeshu University is a wonderful institution in America. Sorry? Uh, I, of, yeah, my son knows him very well. Of him. Ah, uh, it's very special. I mean, everyone involved in YU on the boys' campus and the girls are very, very special people. I was involved with Rabbi Kanafogel and people like that. 
people well known. Rabbi Shachter uh, was here a few weeks ago. I shared a room with him. I had to tell him off once. I feel very bad about it. Uh, but I reminded him of it, and he, he was very gracious, and he was gracious when I reminded him about it as well. Um, but uh, they're really, really outstanding people there. And Baruch Hashem, I was teaching Novi for 21 years, and uh, it, was, it's, it was an experience very hard to leave. As hard as it was to leave the, the kids, leaving behind students like that, outside Israel, without a question, the best students you could ever get exposure to in Yeshiva University, without no question in my mind. Um, but again, talk about that maybe another time. I want to share with you for Parshat Kitetse uh, a um, bit of an introduction because in the 21 years that I was teaching, I always gave this introduction every semester almost. I said, look, you know, some, some students like to come into the classroom and they want to hear Musa and they want to you know, get the... the uh, in, the, in America, you would say the baseball bat out, you know, and bash them on the heads with it. Uh, I said, it's not my style. I said, there's certain Rabbonim who do this, and they do it very well. Um, my style is more what I would call hashkafa. Hashkafa meaning, I want to give you a little bit of something to think about. Some approach, some idea. If you get Musa out of it, fine, perfect. But I'm not here to, tell, to give you Musa. I'm not here to tell you what to do, but I like to try and get you to think. If you say to me at the end of this lesson that, you know, I made you think, Baruch Hashem, I've done my job, I'm a happy camper, as they say, so I'm good. Um, what are we going to look at? And this is really the title of the shiur, what is going on in Sefer Devarim? We're at, you know, we're up to Kitete, we're almost done, you know, Simchat Torah is on, well, the Chagim are on the horizon. Um, it's quite extraordinary, but that's, again, a discussion of another time how it works out in this country, Chagir is amazing. Um, but the Parsha Kitesa, once we get to Kitesa, maybe we can ask ourselves the obvious question, what is Chumash Devarim, what is Sefer Devarim all about? What, what's been going on for the last ten Parshiyot approximately? What have, we, what have we been doing? We know it's called Mishnah Torah. Everybody knows that title. It's a repetition. Mishnah means to repeat. So, you can ask the question even more sharp than what we asked before. Why do we have to repeat all of this? So much of things that we've had before is repeated. Uh, so many mitzvahs are repeated. And strangely, many mitzvahs are not repeated. Things are added. Last week, Parashat Shoftim, you've got the whole melech and you've got the uh, lot, of, lot of stuff about war. Things that we haven't heard about till now. So basically, the question which we can raise is a very basic uh, um, you know, question of understanding what is Sefer Devarim all about? What is it doing? The discussion about the authorship of Sefer Devarim, I don't want to get into except to say that everyone uh, <coughs> agrees, almost everyone agrees, you can look at the Arachayim, HaKadosh, and find an interesting point of view there, different to the norm, but everybody agrees this is again, with, as with all the other books of the Torah, transmitted by God, to Moshe, but Sefer Devarim has a special um, packaging. What's the packaging? That Moshe got it and he edited it. According to Natsiv, and again, I would read the text to you, but um, I hope you'll take my word for it. He's got a beautiful introduction from Naftali Sviyuda Berlin, great Rosh Yeshiva of uh, Veloshe, and he writes about this and says that Moshe received it from Hashem and he, and we would say today, edited it. He put it together. He made it connect in ways which were particularly meaningful. And according to Natsiv, and I'm not going to go through his approach, 
the basic point of Sefer Devarim is to uh, be available to learn from the editing that Moshe Rabbeinu did to get the, the, uh, uh, the you know, to get the message. Why is X put next to Y? Why is this subject put next to the other subject? It becomes inspiring. I'm not going to go that, in that particular direction because I want to go in the direction of Rav Kamenetsky. Yako Kamenetsky, um, who passed away in 1986, I heard him once in Eretz when we were living here in the 80s, um, he uh, spoke in Ramot, I remember going to the, uh, the Drosh, and he was very impressive, he left a, an impression, I can't tell you what he said, no, I don't remember, I know it was over Sukkot period, so it must have been something about Sukkot, but um, very, very impressive man, originally from the Litter, from Slobodka, I think, was a cousin of Aaron Kotler, went um, uh, before the war, I think they got to, he got to Toronto, and then he came down to uh, Muncie, New York, and lived in Muncie for uh, many, many years, and then uh, uh, passed away in '86. Basically, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky uh, was the, uh, the 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 inspiration, I suppose, in terms of in Torah Vadas and and sort of more on the yeshiva side. And then you had Ramosha Feinstein, who was the halachic genius on the Lower East Side of New York, and these two greats. Strangely, I suppose this is maybe something to think about, uh, functioned together in their own ways and then passed, together, passed away almost at the same, during the same period. It was uh, um, in 86. So Rav Yavu Kamenetsky, after he died, his writings were brought out by his sons. I heard about it um, when the Sefer came out. I wrote to Rav Avram Kamenetsky, uh, the brother of Shmuel, who is running the yeshiva in Philadelphia, is very well known. Rav I don't think is alive anymore, but at the time, he wrote me a wonderful uh, uh, response. I actually sent him too much money, too many dollars. He actually sent me the change. Very, very... I kept the card because it was very special what he wrote. Um, I want to share with you Rav Kamenetsky's answer to the question, what is Sefer Devarim? And I guess it's going to be obvious what we're going to say, but you know what? Sometimes we need to state the obvious as well. And this is the, the page in front of you, and I'm not going to go through the whole text, but I'm going to pick a few pieces out of it because it is extraordinary. What Rav Kamenetsky points out, and we're coming up to this very special mitzvah in a few weeks' time, called Hakel, the end of the Shemitah which we're coming to the end of the Shemitah we are going to have, we won't have the mitzvah the way it is in the Torah, but we'll have a lot of stuff going on at the Kotel and presumably Ushalayim. Hakel, the Hakel, the mitzvah of coming to Jerusalem specially to hear the reading of the Torah by, in, in, in the days of old by the king of Israel. And they will set up a platform in the Beit HaMikdash and it was, must have been a phenomenal event. We do it today, I guess, by you know, coming to the cult and there'll be sort of special uh, um, commemorations and remembrances and whatever. Uh, and that's the mitzvah of Hakel. And that's coming up very soon. One of the things that the king did at Hakel is to read the Torah and the the, um, the halachis are kind of debating what exactly he read, and majority say he read Devarim. Sefer Devarim. Those who come from uh, London and know certain shuls, or Chunas Shul in Golders Green, uh, was tr- traditionally did this every Hashanah Rabbah, they would read Sefer Devarim as part of the what we would call the Tikkun Leil Shanah Rabbah. And I suspect this is to a, a remnant of what used to happen, because Sukkot was the time when you had Hakkah, when they would read Devarim in public. And it will be read by the king. So we make a zecher by doing this 
in certain shuls, I don't know, in America, I didn't see it done too much, but probably is done in Brooklyn, I guess, and uh, other places, and it's the reading of Sefer Devarim. So, says Rav Kamenetsky, and this is uh, in front of you, through this analysis of the Mitzvah Hakeh, we're going to come to an awareness of what Sefer Devarim is all about. Listen to this. He says in the top line here, this is actually taken from Parshat Vayelech, uh, coming up in a few weeks' time. We'll get back to Kitetzeh in a few minutes. He says, You've got to read the Torah out aloud in the ears of the Jewish people. Pirush Rashi, Rashi explains who's doing this. The king read Eile Devarim, the book of Devarim. Says of Kamenetsky, the second line, I'm sorry about all my kishkoshim here, but uh, I'm sticking to the text. Hopefully you can follow that uh, without getting put off by all my uh, little things on the side. So he said, I want to understand, what is this all about? Why is the king reading this out loud to everybody? Why, why is he just reading Sefer Devarim? If it's a miss to read the Torah to everybody, you know, go for the, uh, uh, the whole thing. Why Sefer Devarim? So he says, And he brings a proof from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 13. He says there, he points out that Sefer Devarim is special, as we pointed out, because of this unique um, way that Sefer Devarim comes about communicated by God to Moshe, but not Moshe just being the mouthpiece of God, as he is in the rest of the Torah, but Moshe taking down, I suppose you would say, writing down the notes, and then editing it and putting it into the form of a book. So he explains that this is why Sefer Devarim had a very special place. He goes further than that, and I don't want to cover the, the, all the paragraphs, so I want to cover the bottom paragraph. Because he says, if you look in the book of Yoshua, and I'll just, just read the Pasuk to you. I didn't put it on the page. didn't want to overdo it here. But I, the Pasuk just says, book of Joshua, chapter 1, Lo yomush torah Joshua is told, Yoshua is told, the Torah should never leave your mouth. Says Rashi on the, um, uh, this Pasuk about Yoshua, Sefer Mishnah Torah. It's saying to Yeshua, always have a copy of Mishnah Torah. Nowadays you would say, you know, you got it on your phone. I actually got two copies of Mishnah Torah on my phone. According to what it says over here, Yeshua was told and he had the status of a king. That's a shear for another time. And as a king, he was told that he should always have Mishnah Torah, the book of Devarim, available for reference, for study. And says Rav Kamenetsky, why? Again, what is so unique about Sefer Devarim that the king of Israel, or the equivalent at that time, Yeshua is told, this is the book that you carry around. If he would have had a cell phone in those days, this would have been on his cell phone. Why? Why does Yeshua have to do this, and essentially every king afterwards? Listen to this, because it is a bombshell. He says the third paragraph, V'nei Yeshua ala perichet. Katuv lo yomar sefer Torah zemipicha. The verse that I just read, Upirish Rashi Mishnah Torah, second line, middle of the line of that paragraph. The Hainu shesvir le Rashi. Rashi is of the opinion. The whole dichtiv b'devarim. When we read in the book of Devarim, chapter seventeen, verse eighteen, posse yudchet 
Mishnah Torah, the king has a mitzvah to write down the Torah. The king has one Torah, which is the whole Torah, and that he has his own special edition of Mishnah Torah. So clearly, Mishnah Torah, the book of Devarim, has a special place. It has a special place in terms of the king of Israel. Says Rav Kamenetsky, why? Or ask Rav Kamenetsky, why? And this is the clue to the whole thing. He says on the next line, he says, fourth line of that paragraph, Why did he have to have Sefer Devarim? Mishum it contains everything, the guidebook. You know, you have these books, uh, the dummy's guide too, or whatever they call it in this country. The idiot's guide, they call it in England. I'm not sure what they call it here. Um, the, the guide to, this is not an idiot's guide, but it's the guide to becoming and maintaining kingship in Israel. If you are the king of Israel, you've got to have Sefer Devarim with you the whole time. And he gives in the bracket here, Kagon Hanagat Milchama, running a war, Mechiat Amalek, how to destroy Amalek, Arei Gavul, the cities of the boundary, the borders, Shan Yanim Anogim everything to do with the community. And here he says what is so fantastic. Biuchan, Sider Moshe Seifazer, Moshe organized this book, Kedeshia Kol Mesudal Melech, Moshe knew that the king, this is the handbook, the guidebook for the king of Israel. <laughs> How to lead the people. Now, when the Jews are coming into Israel, as we just read before, at the, in Parsha Vayela, and Yoshua Natal and Hagam, Yoshua takes over the mantle essentially. Yoshua know that you're going to have to hold on to Sefer Devarim. Sefer Devarim becomes a national treasure of the Jewish people. It expresses the national identity of the Jewish people because it's the constitution of the Jewish people. Now again, I remember going to school and learning. Uh, my teacher on day one said to us that we're different to those guys. He was very... Uh, um, not very kind towards people living in the United States. He said, people in the colonies, he said, they have it different over there. They have a constitution. Everything's written down. In the UK, we never wrote it all down, but we have a kind of unwritten constitution. I know about the written constitution because I had to study it to become a citizen of the United States. That's, that's a whole story for another time. But, sorry? So, Vayaka, at the, the end there, coming into Israel, Yeshua's being told as a continuation of what Moshe had started, you've got to have the Book of Devarim in your pocket. You carry it with you. I suppose they carried the Sefer Torah with them. Right? That's the image of the leader of Israel. Carries the Sefer Torah with him. And what I heard once in London, Rabbi Isaac Bernstein, who was one of my close... Uh, uh, he was a teacher and a chaver as well, and still can't get over the fact that how young he was when he passed away. He said, with this concept that Sefer Devarim is a national uh, um, identity of the Jewish people in everything that's going on in Sefer Devarim. He says, we'll understand a very interesting, strange quirk in Jewish law. If you celebrate a wedding and the Chatan manages to make it to the shul sometime during the Sheva Bracha, he's a very popular guy. 
Because one of the strange things of shul going in the morning is a prayer called Tachana. Some of you will know this. It's a prayer that everybody's happy about, not when we say it, but when we don't say it. For reasons very mysterious to this day, I don't really get it, wondered about it for many years, but we don't say it, we're all very happy, because we get out of shul two minutes early. So the Chatan, that maybe is the reason, the Chatan comes in, and everybody's, wow, the Chatan is here, no, especially on a Monday and Thursday, it's a longer Tachan, wow, he's a, he's a, he's a hero. It's so interesting, because God forbid if somebody goes through a bereavement, and he t- can't get a minion in the house, and he has to come to shul. Again, in the house, there's no tachlin in the shiva house. That's one of the bits of the service that's missed out. But in shul, if the person who suffered the bereavement turns up to shul during that week, they do say tachlin. And the question is asked, why? Why the difference between the two situations? Chatan comes, no tachlin. The, the avail comes, the, the mourner comes, and there's tachlin. And the answer is, because in the situation of the person celebrating a marriage, which is codified in Sefer Dvarim, this week's parasha, who you can marry, who you essentially you can't, Pesulei Kahal it's called, people cannot come into the congregation, the Mamzer, and all the various difficult situations that we read about, that is establishing a national agenda. Sefer Dvarim establishes a national agenda. And when someone gets married, it's not just a personal celebration, it's a national celebration. That's a wow. If someone comes to shul, you don't know them from Adam, and they walk into shul and they say they're a chatan, then we're all part of that celebration. And how do we reflect it in the tefillah? A certain tefillah, which we don't say on holidays, we won't say when the chatan is there. Mourning is a private circumstance. Someone who's in mourning and bereavement that's private. Even if he comes to synagogue, comes to shul, it won't have the same effect because it's not a national loss, it's a private loss. And that's reflected in the rule that even though he's in shul and he doesn't say this prayer in the house, the shiva house, he will say it in the synagogue. Because for him, this is not a national thing, it's a private thing. It's, it, it, it's mind-blowing. I'm going to take it a little bit further than the Rav Kamenetsky did because living in Israel... Today, we have to understand, think back to all those mitzvot that are repeated in Sefer Devon. The Ten Commandments, give you an example. The Aseret brought. we had them in Sefer Shmo, in Parshat Vitro, and then we got them again in Parshat uh, Vetchana. Why? Why the repetition? I know they're different wordings. <coughs> the first tablets, the second tablets, whatever, all the explanation. Why does it have to be repeated? And I think with Rav Kamineski's idea that Sefer Devarim is the national identity of the Jewish people, and living in Eretz Yisrael today, we can really understand this. That there's got to be, I know the country is not a religious country. We know this. It's a secular government. We're all aware of the challenges. But there is a certain Jewishness embedded even in the laws of the State of Israel. I'll give you one example. This this. I, I, I came across this picture, and I just, I haven't got a copy for everybody, you can just pass them around. Uh, two, I just want to send that that way. Just have a look, and it's really quite something. Um, 1965, and I was pretty young at the time, but I sort of remember it. Hey, I was more, you want to send them around. The... <laughs> This is a fascinating photo, and there's a, there's a newspaper quote to go with it. Winston Churchill died in 1965. 
and he was buried on a Shabbat. It was a big, you know, the Brits are good at funerals, probably more than anything else, and, you know, we know this. And all dignitaries from around the world had to turn up for the Leviah, as we would call it. Problem is, it's Shabbat, Shabbos. You know, and they're all going in these big uh, limousines, again, whatever cars it was in those days, and the Israeli delegation made a request. And in the picture in front of you, you've got two people in top hats. You'll probably recognize David Ben-Gurion on the left and the one on the right under the word Alami. I don't know what Alami is, probably the company that has the copper at the photo. Um, that's Zalman Shazar. Shazar was a Shomer Shabbat. He was the president of the state of Israel in 1965 and he was Shomer Shabbos. And he made a request that even in the entourage where they took all the dignitaries from wherever the funeral started to the Westminster Abbey where they buried Churchill, he was not going to ride in the car, he was going to walk. And there's a famous thing, I think it's on YouTube somewhere, there's a picture of the Shazar walking uh, in, with company, and I suspect it was Ben-Gurion walking with him, behind the car. The car was going very slowly, and Shazar was walking behind. And when they asked him why... President Shazar, why are you walking? You know, it's a long walk. He said, because I'm a Sabbath observant. And he didn't make it into a personal thing. He said, as a representative of the state of Israel, which observes the Jewish Sabbath, we cannot be seen publicly to desecrate the Shabbat. Now, this picture is them walking home. Because apparently, he st- after the funeral was o- over, they walked back to their hotel. Uh, which part of London? You've got the clue here, Irish Independent. This is a picture from 1965. So anyone who knows where that is, please tell me. According to the, 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 uh, the, the subtitle of the photo, they said it's somewhere in Finsbury Park. doesn't make sense to me. That's, that's too far to go. must have been somewhere a bit, a bit nearer to the centre of town. Um, again, for those of you from, from the UK, spot the MI5 guy. You can, you can spot him immediately. The guy with the bowler hat at the back, right? That's, that's obviously a British uh, secret service. The Israelis walking next to Ben-Gurion. I love the fact that the top hats have stayed on and everything else. The only thing that's going on here, of course, they're walking back because if Shazar is walking to the funeral, to the, to the abbey, then he's got to walk back. He's a Shomer Shabbat. He's not going to ride back to the hotel. And to Ben-Gurion's credit, he walked with him. The only problem is there was no Arab at that time. So I'm a bit, I have to be questioned, you know, Ben-Gurion's carrying something here. Shazar, you can see, is not carrying I'm, I, I'm assuming he made the inquiry before he came to London. But this is such an interesting photo because it says to me, has the reputation of Ben-Gurion, which was so against religion in so many ways, nevertheless, when it came to a public demonstration in Chutz Aretz in London at the time, the Israeli delegation was seen to be Shomer Shabbat in public. This is the national constitution of the State of Israel. I was in the army in 85, got to a basis near Shechem, and first thing I did when I got to basis, after running around the field ten times, we wanted to run around, um, we were told that, you know, you're going in for whatever food, you find the mashkiah. And the basis was kosher. I would, I would bring a, a, a family there, you know, for, for, for a chag. I would, if you could, you could eat there. It was very, very well supervised. This is back 30 years ago. Um, it's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And again, back to what we're saying the repetition in Sefer Devarim of so many things is to establish them, and I see it today in Israel, as a national 
um, a, a statement of identity. Our identity is the Sabbath on Shabbat, on Saturday, and not the way the world does it, either on a Friday or on a Sunday. We do it on a Saturday, this is Shabbat. And look at the repetition. I can't go through all of them, but I'm just thinking, even Kashrut is repeated there. Why is Kashrut repeated in Sefer Devar? We've had it already, all the details in Sefer Vayikra. Again, because the standard, even if you're, and we know the problems of Kashrut in this country, but we know that the standard of Kashrut certainly has improved since the time we lived here many years ago. It's getting better all the time, and that is the national identity of the Jewish people, that we have a system known as kosher. I wish more people would keep it, but reality is there's still many more that do uh, today than probably ever did before. And, you know, in the course of time, hopefully it's going to get better and better. So all of these repetitions, whatever they may be, even Shema Yisrael, which is added in in Sefer Devarim, is a, is a, is a, a, you know, a cry of faith. It's a statement of identity as a nation. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokein, Hashem Echan. We believe in one God, we have this uh, uh, connection to God, and that's who we are. So all of this coming together is to, saying to me what Rav Kamineski says in his way, that Sefer Devarim is expressing the national identity of the Jewish people. I wanted to go a little bit further because uh, I'm not sure how much time we have. Can we have still a few minutes? Uh, we're going to um, go to Parshat Ki and section B, and I'm going to share with you something here which uh, is an explanation of the... Uh, um, I don't know how you call it, the law at the beginning of Pasha Kitei again, with a very specific um, um, introduction and a specific point of view. Once we understand the purpose, the function of Sefer Devarim, so many uh, elements in Sefer Devarim take on a different, a different uh, uh, view. They become different. Question, and I wonder if anyone knows the answer to this, who in the Tanakh is the one person that we know that when he went to war brought home a trophy a woman from the front line the story that we read at the beginning of Parshat Ki the story goes that you're out in battle the enemy sends out these women dressed up presumably as uh, with all the uh, accoutrements and whatever and they're t- enticing the men away from the battle and the, the Jewish soldier is given an allowance to bring home this trophy from battle, if you want to call it that. But she's got to stay in the house for a month, and she loses her makeup, and she, her nails start growing, she can't go to the beauty parlor, so she's, she's getting a bit antsy, as you say. All of this stuff is happening to her, and at the end of the month, if you want to hold on to her, you're allowed to hold on to her. I'm sure 99 out of 100 would send her back. One person brought a Yifat Torah, as she's called in Hebrew, she brought her home, and she stayed. Anyone know who I'm talking about the most famous person in the Bible, probably. And it's a shock. You want to suggest? No, Rachel. It's, good. it's a good guess, but who brought home a Yifat Torah? Truly unbelievable. I only discovered this through teaching Novi, because it came as a shock. When you teach about Mered Avshalom, the rebellion of Avshalom, you start finding out, Avshalom, why did you want to kill your father? You want to kill David? You want to kill him? And they all, the children had no nachas from the kinder. There's no question about that. Very sad, sad family life. Two children, 
We had Avshalom, and he had a sister called Tamar. Who was the mother? She wasn't a Yiddish mom, I can tell you that. Her name was Ma'acha. She was the daughter of Melech, bless you, Melech Geshur. Melech Geshur was right up, nowadays we would say somewhere in Lebanon, I think. Right, if I'm not mistaken. I may be mistaken, somewhere outside Israel. David and Melech had a wife who was a Fatah. It's unbelievable. And the consequences of it were also unbelievable because Avshalom rebelled and never eventually died. Tamar, the terrible story with the half-brother Amnon who rapes her and the whole story there. And, and, and where does Avshalom run away when he, when he takes revenge on Amnon? He runs to his Zayda, he runs to the Melech Geshur out of Israel and he stays away for, for a very long time. David wants him back and he's not coming back so quickly. It's, it's Pile Plum, it's unbelievable that David Amalek did this and again, I ask myself the question, if we're talking about sort of the national element of Sefer Devarim, how do I understand that David Amalek, as the national leader, is the person, the only person we really know, took one of these trophy wives, trophy women, back from battle, or the story that we read about in this week's Parsha. It's, it's very odd. I'm going to share with you something here, which is, <coughs> as they say in America, it blew my mind. The approach of Rosh Hashanah Shalom Agar, if we're talking about national treasures, I'll just share a little anecdote. I was 16 years old, living in Edgware, which is northwest London. 1968, it must have been the beginning of 68, as a guest speaker in the Edgware United Center, the synagogue holds 2,000 people, every seat was taken, and it happened to be Rabbi Shalom Agar, dressed in his army uniform, never forget it. And he came on a Shabbat, and he spoke in very good English, he really seemed to be able to put it together. And I nudged the guy next to me and I looked and I saw a rabbi with an army uniform and the reputation that he was a Sankhan. He was a parachutist. He used to jump out of planes, right? Apart from doing other things. Um, and I said to the guy next to me, being 16 and quite naive, I said, is that guy Mashiach? I said, he could be. Look at him. He's, he's, he's got all the qualifications that I knew about. It turned out that Rav Goran um, was a Sankhan and this is the little story. The story is that in 1960, he heard about a Basis Sanchanim. There was a there was a base of parachutists that wasn't kosher. It wasn't kosher. They didn't. They, they went down to the base. He was already involved with the army, chief rabbi of the army, I think, at the time. And he went into the Basis and he said, "Why isn't this place kosher?" And the and the head of the Basis said, "Because we have no demand. Nobody here wants kosher food." So what did Rav Goran do? And this is so typical of him. He said, I'll deal with this. And he went away and learned how to be a parachutist. He came back to the base, because now this was his base, because he was a parachutist and he had to jump, he had to be based somewhere to get on a plane, to jump out of the plane. And he said, I remember in that speech when he spoke in Edgeway, he said, I know you know I'm a parachutist, I hate jumping out of planes. But he said, I had to do it, but he didn't go into details. If you want a really good read, the book of the life of Shlomo Gorin is available in English. This is a fantastic read. Fantastic read, um, and something I recommend. His Divrei Torah have been, have been put into various books. This one is called Torah Mikra, and I just want to share with you what he says about the story of the captive, the captive um, woman. He says the following, and he quotes, he's out of the box. Rabbi Gorin is always out of the box, and so interesting. We normally understand that the Torah is giving an allowance to the soldier who has his uh, Yetzirah, he can't control it, at a time of war, and he's allowed to bring this woman home, 
keep her at home for a month, see what happens, and that's the usual understanding of the story. Says Rav Goran, no. He says, I can give you a different approach, and believe it or not, I think this explains to me what was going on with David Amela. Just going to read a little bit from the top. He quotes from the Ari. The Ari, when you're talking Ari um, uh, from Tzvad, you know you're talking in a diff- on a different planet. And the Ari says the following, and it's f- uh, five words along. I'm going to tell you what the Yifat Torah is really all about. Anyone who goes to the war, it's talking about a war which is um, an elective, as you say in America. You're not a as the wars of Israel generally tend to be. But here we're talking about a war like David went to conquer certain areas in the north, outside Eretz Israel. That was the type of war that we're talking about. And we know who, were the, who was in the army. Very holy people. They're so holy, you know, they did mitzvahs. They, they, as we would say today, they were machmirim sheba machmirim. Mahadrim in a mahadrim. And just go to the end of the third line. Uh, sorry, the fourth line. Uh, after the bracket, where it's underlined. The im ken, if we're talking about the soldier, such a righteous man. So what are we talking about, the man giving in to his yetzara? Surely we're talking about the greatest tzaddikim in the world who would control themselves. Even in, the, in battle, they could, they could overcome their, their inclination and they wouldn't even go near any of these women. So what's this law all about? Says, this is mind-blowing. He says, uh, the Ariza, he says, no. He says, what happened was, and I'll just paraphrase it, he said that this is a story about a person going to battle, and he comes across this woman, and why does he want to bring her back to the world of Judaism, to bring her back to Eretz Israel? Because he sees a spark of holiness in this woman. Unbelievable interpretation. He says, in this woman there is something where he sees that spark. And if he sees the spark as a tzaddik, he wants to nurture that spark of holiness. So what does he do? He brings her home. And in the course of a month, if he sees that this is going somewhere, and he can influence her, she will convert, she become whatever, someone in the Jewish community, and all, all well and good. The trouble is, it wasn't so straightforward. The Gemara says that there are three mitzvot at the beginning of Kitetzei, the law of this woman in battle, the law of a woman who is hated by the husband, two, two wives, one is hated, and the ben Sorel more the rebellious child. Gemara says it's not a coincidence. This is where Moshe put it together so brilliantly. Because if you take this woman home, she'll become hated, says the Gemara, and you'll produce a rebellious child. Who is the proof of that? Dovin Amelech. Dovin Amelech, I honestly believe, according to the Ari, this was what went on with Dovin. When you talk about Dovin Amelech, you're talking about a tzaddik yisod olam. Someone who can't understand the righteousness of that man. And when he saw this woman in battle, and she was a princess, presumably, from whichever army it was, uh, from whatever king it was, she was, to David HaMelech, a challenge. I see an element of holiness in this woman, and it suits. And if I can take her back and nurture that flame, nurture whatever he saw, then she would become part of the Jewish community. And in fact, he did it, and he married her. And they had two children. They had an Avshalom, and they had a Tamar, never. Avshalom eventually wants to kill his father, and Tamar is raped and eventually sort of just disappeared. 
It's tragedy. And the Ari says that this mitzvah, when you look at it in such a different way, sort of, you know, gives us again another inkling, another uh, um, uh, awareness of the depth and the understanding of human nature that the Torah possesses. It understands that the tzaddik, the righteous man, he wants to do the best thing that he possibly can in the world, and this is part of what he wants to do. We call it today, tikkun olam, he wants to repair the world. And if he can bring one spark back from the, the whatever world it was that she was coming from, and you can imagine what world she must have come from, and he wants to bring it back into the Jewish people, then the Torah allows him to do it. Fascinating. So what do we learn from this? And he had these two children. And, 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 and Rav Goran says that so this, the, the, the marshal is, the, the, the lesson is, it's allowed, but, you know, like you say, all good warnings, you don't play with fire. You really don't do it. David did it because David is David Amal. And he's the inspirational man. But do, should we indulge in this? We're told categorically, no. What I try to understand with what um, the Ari says is how did Dobby do this in the first place? Why did Dobby allow himself to do this? And it seems that he did because maybe, according to this explanation, he saw something in this woman that he could nurture to bring her closer to holiness. But he says at the end, even if this is the, the, uh, the, the, the mindset of the person doing this mitzvah as he wants to do it, it's too much of a risk and the Torah definitely does not encourage you to do this. There are certain things which are just, you know, you, you want to do it, but no, this is not, not to be done. And I guess there is a bit of musa, which I'm trying to avoid jumping into, in terms of, you know, Kirov and everything else, we, how careful we have to be, etc., etc. Um, I'm going to leave you to sort of ponder on, 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 on the thought of that. Are there statistics uh, in this, how many fell into this? Sorry? Are there statistics how many fell into this? No, was apart from Domin Amela, we don't know. You don't know if as many people did? Or and one gets the impression that it was pretty common, and also the impression that they just sent them home. After the war, they all went back home, because you can't have this woman in the house. She's so an, an, an antithesis of everything that you stand for. You know, it's the question I, I asked the student, I taught Shlomo Amela, and I asked the question, Shlomo Amela married to a thousand non-Jewish women. And Ramam says they all converted, but the conversion was maybe a dip in the, in the Jordan. It was a token conversion. So my question to the students is, who lit the Shabbos candles in the palace? Only two possibilities. Because these women knew nothing. Because as soon as they could do idolatry, they went straight back to it. So who lit the Shabbos candles? It was either Shlomo himself, or maybe, I'm assuming Batsheva was still around in the palace, so she would have lit the Shabbos candles. Nobody else could do it. The answer is that, you know, there comes a point where Shlomo brought in all of these elements from the outside to try and be Malin Bakodesh, and in the end it worked against him. And these are very interesting stories, very challenging stories. Dovid Amelach, Shlomo Amelach, these are great men. But what they did and how they played with fire on occasion is something for us to think about. So I brought this to you because it's such a different interpretation of this story, a bit of which we, uh, you know, we've learned over the years, and completely different interpretation. I want to leave you with one thought because I'm coming to the end of the time. Um, we have three mitzvahs. Again, if we're talking about Moshe putting together the Sefer Devarim, ABC, as, as we would call it, certain mitzvahs going next to each other. Last week we had the mitzvahs of war. This week we have a mitzvah again to do with war, the Yifat Torah. 
In the middle, at the end of last week's Parsha, there is something called Egla Arufa. Egla Arufa was a excuse me, very strange, very wondrous um, ceremony. You find a corpse between two cities, tale of two cities, and what happens is that you don't know who the guy is, dead unfortunately, and you have to measure from the nearest town to the corpse, and the base thing comes out to, the, to this barren place, right? You know, if you drive out of, out of here five minutes, you'll, you'll, you'll get exactly what it means by a barren place, because amazing landscapes. Really, we're, we're living in, 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 the, in the real deal when it comes to these mitzvot, the explanation. And the base has to take responsibility for what happened. And again, what is the juxtaposition? What is the purpose of putting these things together? And I'm back to the national agenda. I just heard it on the radio this morning. Discussion about Nebuch, when people are captured and they're in enemy hands and they're not being let go. There's a whole discussion at the moment. And it's a terribly, terribly difficult situation. And Israel, we're not party to the behind-the-doors negotiation, but we know that as a standard, every soldier that is in captivity, think about the Gilad Shalit story, even if it meant when he was released, letting loose so many evil people in, in the quid pro quo for, what, for what, what it was, Israel did it. Because that one life, as we know, is worth, for us, it's olam malay, it's like a whole world. This week's Parsha and last week's Parsha, all about war, but what's in the middle? The statement, a life has value. Because even if we don't know who the person is, we make a ceremony. We recognize that a person has died. And we are responsible for the, the situation that had he had a bit more attention when he was in the town A or town B, he would not have got to this point where he would have died between the two cities. The statement is being made again in Sefer Devarim, which I'm proud to say and I'm proud to uh, um, be part of, 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 of Israel today, which has this value that every life is precious. Every person, every... I wish they would remember that when they're driving on the roads, but let's assume that people do. Every life is important. And, again, think back to the... the I remember when we were in the States, the hurricane in, in Haiti, 2014 or whenever it was, maybe a bit earlier than that. Who was the first group that got to Haiti to set up a field hospital? It wasn't the American government, I assure you. It was the Israelis. They got there with a field hospital, saving lives. They must have saved dozens of people before anyone else even got there to start, you know, administering uh, medicines and whatever to try and help people in that terrible situation. The national agenda of the Jewish people, Sefer Devarim, and it's something which the king had to read every, essentially every free moment that he had, and in public at the Mitzvah of Hakel, the king would read this out to the whole nation to remind everybody, Sefer Devarim establishes our national identity. Things that are important to us, not just as individual Jews, but as a nation of Israel. What we stand for. Or Lagoyim. And let's hope and let's pray. And I say this with a, you know, with, with a tear in my eye, that in this world which is getting more anti-Israel and, and, and I worked on campuses and I don't even want to discuss what's going on in the campuses in the United States at the moment. It's just very, very frightening what, what's happening there uh, for the Jewish population particularly. The reality of it is that we are in a situation, let's hope, that these values, 
that we cherish and we understand and we and, and, and we want to see the world respond to this and 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 and, and get our message across that that light to the nation will be a light that is something please God that we at least should understand from learning these parshiyot of Sefer Devarim what it means to us and then we can convey it on to our children and beyond and hopefully in the end of the day as Rabbi Sachs did and so many others before him conveyed it to the whole world and that's something very special the national identity of the Jewish people think about that I think it's. I think. I hope it was worth coming just to hear that, that point. I hope so. Uh, any questions before we uh, so it's, wrap up? It's Please. It's interesting that the whole union of the Melech is not mentioned anywhere in the Torah except for Sefer Dvarim. And that's, and the, that's the national identity, and that's the connection. And that's the connection. And what also Rav Kamenetsky said, what I said before, Pesule Kahol. When we talk about the forbidden marriages in Sefer Dvarim, it's Kahol. Because it's affecting the community. It's a communal statement. These people are not part of the Jewish people as a community, as a nation. That's very interesting language. And it's a chiddush. To me, it was beautiful. Statistics business. The Torah addresses issues based on human nature. And human nature is to do this. And and Sefer they were all set back. Correct, correct. So what you got to do, but this parish of Rav Goran is yeah, mind-blowing. Right. Wow. <laughs> who, who made Kiddush for Queen Esther? Who made Kiddush for Queen Esther? Apart from Queen Esther herself, well, Mordechai presumably was around, but maybe not. He couldn't really get in. He was wandering yeah, around outside. Always bothers me. Yeah. yeah, she would do it herself, I guess. She had, she had, you know, the, the servants, she had, she had Mary on a Monday and, uh, you know, Tuesday on a Tuesday, you know, so, but Shabbos, she knew when it was Shabbos, so. Can I pinch it? Please, these, these pictures, this picture, if you want to take it away, it really is a special thing, very special. Thank you everybody for listening, thank you so much.